This is Jason Hansen, pastor of Anchor Church. Thank you for jumping onto our sermon podcast. My prayer is that as you listen to this sermon, you're encouraged in your walk with Jesus and that you live for him in all of life. Enjoy the sermon now. This morning, you can turn your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, chapter 9. And that's not a book you're probably super familiar with, so don't be af- afraid to use your table of contents. Or maybe the easiest way to find it is go to the book of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament, and then flip back to your left about eight pages, and that'll get you right in the, the vicinity of Zechariah. It's the second to last uh, by a book of the, the Old Testament. Um, so you can turn there now, and as we think about uh, Palm Sunday, what we see is Jesus at the height of his celebrity, And as I thought about that, I thought about my own run-in with a celebrity many years ago. Now, this is a B-list celebrity, maybe even D-list, I don't know. Uh, But when I was in high school, I went through a a heavy metal phase, you know, like we all did, right? You did too. Um, And I had had a mohawk, the sides of my head were shaved. Uh, I basically only wore black band t-shirts, and I worked at Dairy Queen. And one of the, yeah, it's great. It's a great combo. And one of the ladies that I worked with at Dairy Queen, her name was Tony, and she was middle-aged, maybe 40s or 50s, and she was stuck in her heavy metal phase. She was awesome, but, you know, facial piercings, bright hair, the tattoos, all of that. She, she never got out of the heavy metal phase, and, and she called me Hawk, because I had a mohawk. So that's, that's what she knew me as, as Hawk. Actually, I don't know if she knew my name. She knew me as Hawk. And one day, I'm in the back washing dishes, as, as I often did, probably listening to Pantera as I did so. And she comes rushing back, and she says, Hawk, Hawk, stop washing the dishes. you got to come up front. Someone's here. I'm like, who? The owner of Dairy Queen? Mr. Dairy Queen himself? Who's, who's here? She said, it's Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper is up front. He's ordering an Orange Julius. Now, if you don't know who Alice Cooper is, here's a picture of Alice Cooper. Uh, Alice Cooper is an old, he's known as the godfather of shock rock. And so when I heard Alice Cooper, this is the image that I had in my mind. I'm expecting to rush up front and see this man with the, the, the tall hat and the studded jacket, maybe a little fake blood on the shirt, certainly the guy liner, all of that sipping on an orange Julius, a fresh orange Julius. And so you can imagine my surprise when I ran to the front and I saw this guy here. That is Alice Cooper. And that's more the picture of what Alice Cooper looked like when I met him. He was dressed down. He was in his normal clothes. And he gave us all autographs. He signed his receipts and a few receipts for us. And, and we, we talked with him. And he was so gentle and gracious. Quiet. There we go. Even quiet and nice. And the longer he talked, the less he fit the bill of the image I had and, and the less meaningful that autograph was to me. Because I thought, this ain't the guy. I mean, yeah, it says Alice Cooper, but this ain't the guy. And as we think about, as we explore Palm Sunday this morning, what we want to ask is how we got from what Ellie just read in Matthew chapter 21, especially in verse 10, when the whole city is in an uproar, saying, who is this? This is the prophet of God. How did we get from that on Sunday to on Friday, as we saw in the video, people yelling, crucify him. How did people go, the crowd, we want to think about the crowd here and put our faces in that crowd. How did they go from casting down their garments and themselves in worship to casting Jesus out within a week, really 
less than a week. How did they go from this is God's Messiah to this ain't the guy? This just ain't the guy. It's an important topic for us to think about because if we're honest, I think many of us can have the same trajectory during our weeks. On Sunday, even a Sunday like this, we can sing, Hosanna, oh, praise him, God is amazing. And by Wednesday, either literally with our words or functionally in our actions, our, our lives shout, yeah, this ain't the guy. This ain't the guy. And then we do it all again the next week. Highs on Sunday, by Friday, this ain't the guy. Isn't that relatable? Some of you maybe have done that just in your Christian walk. You think back to when you first became a Christian and you were praising God, throwing all down for him. And now, as we look at your life, as you look at your own life, maybe it has a testimony of, yeah, this ain't the guy. How did we get there? I think the same way the crowd got there. What we're going to see this morning, the corrective for us, the invitation for us, this is my big idea, is that failed expectations are opportunities for fresh faith. Failed expectations are opportunities for fresh faith. You see, the crowd had expectations of Jesus. And as we're going to see in Zechariah, which is where they got their expectations from, in large part, you can understand why they had the expectations they did. But they were placing on Jesus expectations that noble as they may have been in some level, were not Jesus' plan. They were not God's plan, and God was never going to meet those expectations. And we do the same thing in our lives. So we want to learn from their mistakes and be corrected in our own. So we're going to look at the book of Zechariah, chapter 9. This is the prophecy that Ellie just read as, as it talks about shout and triumph, Jerusalem, here comes your king on a, on a donkey. This is that prophecy. It's actually either uh, quoted directly or referenced in every one of the gospel accounts of what's known as the triumphal entry, the, the uh, Palm Sunday narrative. And, and this, is, this is where the prophecy comes from. We want to uh, read it and understand it this morning and understand where their expectations came in light of this passage and where Jesus maybe pushed back against those expectations. We could say failed them, but really he was never going to meet their expectations because it wasn't his plan. But let's see it here in Zechariah chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of your covenant, I will release your prisoners from waterless cisterns. Return to a stronghold, you prisoners who have hope. Today I declare that I will restore double to you, for I will bend Judah as my bow. I will fill that bow with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece. I will make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will fly like lightning, and the Lord God will sound the ram's horn and advance with the southern storms. The Lord of armies will defend them. They will consume and conquer with sling stones. They will drink and be rowdy as if with wine. They will be as full as the sprinkling basin like those at the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of his people for they are like jewels in a crown sparkling over his land. How lovely and beautiful 
Grain will make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. What we want to do is just look at some snapshots. We're going to jump back and forth between Zechariah and some snapshots in the Gospels that give us clues as to when people began to be disillusioned with Jesus. And we want to explore why they got to that point. Before we get there, I just want to give you really brief background. This is like super Cliff Notes version, so you can see the similarities here. The, the people that Zechariah is prophesying to, that we just read, they are a people who have been exiled, who have been conquered many times over. Oftentimes, armies will come in and clean out the land of Jerusalem and take the people and carry them off to a faraway land, and then at some point they're brought back, and the whole thing happens again down the road. And these are the people that Zechariah is writing to, is prophesying to, that God is speaking to through the prophet. They have been exiled many times over, and they've now been brought back into the land, but the land is desolate. It's not what they remembered. Think about it this way. If you um, think back to some of your childhood haunts, some of the places that you loved. I've experienced this. You go back to a playground that in your mind as a kid was so amazing, and then you come back as an adult, and you're like, really? What happened here? Time and neglect has run it over. Maybe it's even a childhood home that in your mind was so amazing that you see it down the road, and you think, man, that place is a dump now. This is what the people were experiencing in the book of Zechariah. They've come back into Jerusalem, but their homes are torn down, their farms are razed, the, the temple's destroyed. Every, nothing as, is as it would be, and they're still occupied. So they're exiles back at home. Home in air quotes, because home isn't what it was. And a lot of those things are true of the people in the crowd as Jesus marches into Jerusalem on this day. Now, Jerusalem isn't desolate. It's not been leveled. It's actually been built up. But the people are still occupied. They're occupied by the Romans. And so they're still exiles at home. There's a lot of similarities between the people that Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, uh, being praised by, and the people that Zechariah was prophesying to. And so these expectations that the people have map directly on to what, what was being uh, preached here in Zechariah, what was being prophesied. And the people had these expectations, one of them being that this king would be a victorious king. Is this a victorious king? Well, we remember Zechariah, that, that we just read it, that, that we're called to rejoice greatly and shout in triumph because the king is coming. He is righteous and victorious. And we, we need to recognize that as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the reason why their expectations are so high is because this is not just any dude riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, okay? This is the, the prophet. We've been in the book of Mark where we see that Jesus, at, some, at times, his renown is so great, he can't even come into cities. They're pushing him out of homes because so many people are crowding around. They see this is the, the one who has the words of life. His authority is unlike any other. He's casting out demons. He's raising the dead. He's healing the sick. He's walking on water. That's the one riding the donkey into town. It's not just any guy. It's not just any carpenter riding a donkey and then you have on top of that, Jesus is saying, hey, you remember that prophecy about me back in Zechariah 9? That's, that's about me. That's about me. So get me a donkey because that prophecy is about me. You can see how the people's expectations are being built up. But here's how they wanted to see that expressed. They wanted to see Jesus come in and take the throne and push out the Romans. They wanted a violent, bloody conquest they wanted a king who was going to take the throne that day. 
It's why they're throwing down their robes. They're kind of laying out the red carpet, so to speak, for Jesus. And they're laying down palm branches. Now, if you don't know the history behind that, I won't get too deep into this, but, but those palm branches that we think about on Palm Sunday, they, they call back to a time in Jewish history known as the Maccabean Re- Revolt. And what happened is the, the, the people of Israel, they are occupied, they are oppressed, and this priest, Mattathias, kind of raises up and leads a revolt, and they push out the Seleucid Empire, which is a, a Roman empire, is a Roman occupation. And they actually, it's a bloody war, but they push him out. This is about three generations before Jesus comes along. Okay, so as the people who are now again occupied by Rome see Jesus coming into town, this king who would bring victory, they're mapping on their cultural expectations of another uprising, another conquest, and their biblical expectations of this victorious king. And it all heaps onto Jesus. You are going to take the throne. Let's go. Let's go to war. So imagine their dismay. When shortly after Jesus rides into town, we see this in the book of John, imagine their confusion, like me running to the front, hoping to see Alice Cooper and seeing Alice Cooper. Imagine their dismay when Jesus, in John chapter 12, begins talking about his death, his death by crucifixion. I won't read all of it to you, but I'll just give you the short version. It says this in John 12, 32. This is Jesus saying, as for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. Okay, so Jesus is saying, in the words before this too, you capture this, but he's saying, I'm going to die by crucifixion. Shortly after he rides in, with all those expectations, the people who crucified people were the Romans. So you know that Roman emperor that you're expecting me to push out? Actually, he's going to kill me. And we begin to see the people, right away, start to get disillusioned with Jesus, the crowd, in verse 34, replied to him, We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever, so how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? People hear Jesus predicting his death, and already the seeds, maybe this is Monday morning, are starting to be planted. Well, maybe this isn't the guy. Maybe he's not going to do what we thought he would do. That doesn't sound like victory, being lifted up on a cross, we, we were expecting a victorious king, but see, Jesus came to do something even better than what they expected. He came to give them a greater victory. You notice what Jesus rode into town on was not a war horse, but a beast of burden. He rode in on a donkey. This was illustrative of what he would do himself, which is take on the burdens of his people, the burden of sin and guilt and death for all who would put their faith in him. And he would carry those to the cross. That's the victory that Jesus came to bring. Not some temporary military victory. You see, uh, like I said, the, the Maccabean revolt happened three generations before Jesus. And here they are, back under Roman oppression. He's not, he's not bringing that sort of short-term fake victory. He's bringing the real victory that we truly need over sin and death. Here's the problem. That is not what the people were looking for. That wasn't what they wanted. They wanted Rome out now. They wanted victory the way they wanted it, and they wanted it now. And here's the problem. They missed out on an opportunity to see the true victory that God was bringing. You see, they didn't need freedom from Roman occupation. 
They needed freedom from the occupation of sin in their hearts. They didn't need freedom from Roman oppression. They needed freedom from the, uh, the tyranny of sin and death in their lives. And because they didn't want that, they missed it. They said, instead thought, eh, this ain't the guy. You can't be the Messiah. This ain't the guy. Second expectation they had was of a restored kingdom. And again, they rightfully pulled this from Zechariah chapter 9. Their expectations, I think, are in line with Zechariah on some level. Just the application is off, but they're expecting a restored kingdom. In Zechariah 9, God is calling the people who are still exile back into Jerusalem. He says, return to a stronghold. That's a, a strong city. You prisoners who have hope. Today I declare that I will restore double to you. Now, if we had the time and if you wanted to listen to me talk for long enough, we could go through the whole first half of Zechariah chapter 9 and we would see that God is vindicating his people at the expense of those who have tortured them and tormented them and occupied them and oppressed them. It's a whole list in the first half of Zechariah 9 of, of nations that have held Israel down and God is going to vindicate them at those nations' expense. He's going to cast them out, cast them down, and lift up Israel. He's going to restore them. And this is what the people, throwing their cloaks down for Jesus in the crowd, this is what they expected. They expected that Israel would be restored to her place of power and prestige at the expense of the Romans, at the expense of the nations. So not in a passive way, not just like Israel's going to be uh, at the top again, but Israel's going to be at the top because God is going to plunder Rome on their behalf. This is their expectation of Jesus, and they get that from Zechariah, at least in some ways. So again, imagine their dismay, their confusion, perhaps their frustration on Tuesday morning of Holy Week when Pharisees and Herodians come to Jesus to challenge him and kind of catch him in a trap, and they, they put this before him. They say, teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. Tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They're trying to catch Jesus in a trap. Because if Jesus says, no, don't pay your taxes to Caesar, now Caesar can, the, the, the Roman authorities can come in and say, okay, you're trying to lead a revolt. We're going to take you out right here. But if Jesus says, pay your taxes to Caesar, then all those people in that crowd are going to go, hold on, we thought you were going to bring restoration at the expense of Rome. What, what's the deal, Jesus? And it says in verse 18, Jesus perceives their malicious intent. He says, why are you testing me, hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Whose image and inscription is on this? He asked them. Caesar's, they said to him. Then he said to them, give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. We've got some broken expectations here. The people are expecting restoration at the expense of Rome. And here is Jesus saying, no, go ahead and pay your taxes. It's fine. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. That's not what I've come for. I have not come for Caesar's money. Jesus has come to bring a better kingdom. He's actually come to plunder the nations, but not of their wealth, of their people. He's come to call a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation to call them into the kingdom of God. Oh, Jesus will plunder the nations, but not of money, 
Not of land, not of power, none of those things. No, of souls. He's going to bring all people into his kingdom, this radical kingdom of diversity, this, this kingdom of people restored to God, exiles in the world, but restored to God. Jesus was coming to bring them a better kind of restoration. You see, these people in the crowd, just like you and I outside of Christ, were far from God, and they needed to be restored to him. And that doesn't come through a political leader. That doesn't come through wealth and riches. That doesn't come through power and prestige. It actually comes through humility, through laying yourself at the feet of Jesus, begging for his mercy, and it's through faith in his humble death on the cross that we have entrance into this better kingdom for the people there listening to Jesus say, go ahead and pay your taxes, it's fine. This was an opportunity for them to experience the true restoration that they needed, restoration into the kingdom of God. But instead, they walk away, this ain't the guy. This ain't the guy. The last expectation they have, at least that we're going to explore this morning, is of a peaceful kingdom. Again, we can jump back to Zechariah chapter 9 and see where they got this. In verse 10, God tells the people, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Jesus is, uh, or here, Zechariah is prophesying that the tools for war won't be needed anymore. When it says, I'm going to cut off the chariot and remove the horse and the bow of war, he's saying you're not going to need the weapons for war because there's going to be peace from sea to shining sea. There's going to be peace. He'll go on in verse 14 to prophesy, then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will fly like lightning. The Lord God will sound the ram's horn in advance with the southern storms. The Lord of armies will defend them. Oh, do you feel the peace? An oppressed people, a burdened people, a, ca- a people cast down and occupied. Here's the promise. God's going to fight for us. We're not going to need weapons anymore because he's going to establish a kingdom of peace. Oh, do you feel the expectations rising for them? This sounds amazing. We've been beat down for so long. Because they were accepting an earthly king in their minds, they were expecting immediate peace in the land. Again, freedom from the violence and oppression of Rome. That Jesus was going to take the throne, make a revolt, push out the Romans. Oh, there'll be violence as we push them out, but after that, peace. This is the expectation they have on Jesus. Again, put yourself back in their shoes on Tuesday afternoon ish, when Jesus says this, Matthew 24, as he's leaving the temple, his disciples call his attention to the temple. Look at how beautiful it is. Look at its glory and its splendor. And Jesus replied to them, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is predicting the destruction of the the capital of both their religious and political life. Those two are combined in this culture. It's a theocracy. So this this picture of their religious and political influence and and structure, their power and their prestige, he's saying, yeah, it's all going to be thrown down. 
that's going to be cast down. Hold, hold on, Jesus. We were expecting a peaceful kingdom. And then he goes on. This is in verse 9 of Matthew 24, still Tuesday afternoon. He says, They will hand you over to be persecuted, and they will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Put yourself in that crowd. This ain't the guy. This, this doesn't sound like peace. Hold on. I've been persecuted my whole life. My parents were persecuted, and my grandparents were, were done with persecution, Jesus. You're supposed to come and bring peace. We're going to die? What? The temple's going to be thrown down? What? See, what Jesus came to bring was a true and better peace, not a superficial peace, not a peace that could be torn down by advancing armies, not, not a peace that could be threatened from the outside. No, he came to bring true peace with God through reconciliation, through his death on the cross, carrying all our enmity with God, the burden of our violence towards God. Jesus carried it on the cross so that we might have peace with God. That is the peace they needed. That's the peace that you and I need. See, Jesus was actually inviting them into a life that followed the pattern of the cross, where you lay yourself down, you're persecuted by the world, but you're sons and daughters of the living God. And you have peace with him and peace with one another. That's the peace that they needed and that we needed. And this was an opportunity for the crowd to see that kind of peace and to know it and to experience it and to be made new in that reality. And yet, this ain't the guy. No, Jesus, I'm not up for more persecution. This ain't the guy. See, the people missed Jesus because they weren't looking for Jesus. They were looking for someone else. They were looking for Mattathias again from the Maccabean Revolt. They were looking for someone else. They weren't looking for Jesus, and so they missed him. And for some, that meant by Friday they were yelling, crucify him. He's failed my expectations time and again throughout this week. Crucify him. I think the majority of them, in my opinion, probably weren't even there yelling that. They had already gone home by Wednesday. They already decided, yeah, this, this ain't it. I'm not wasting my time here. This ain't the guy. Some of them, maybe they were still there, silently watching on, still kind of confused, intrigued, feet glued to the floor, lips glued shut, wondering, is this the guy? I don't, I don't know. He doesn't seem like it. So the people wanted a narrow, earthly kingdom, and they wanted it now. That's not what Jesus came to bring. And here's why we need to hear this this morning. Because for many of us, the same is true of us. We have the same problems. We bring uh, to our expectations of God all of this baggage. Some of it that we've gotten from the Bible, some of it that we've gotten from culture, and we live in a culture that has the gospel of the American dream that says that you're going to have peace and prosperity. You're going to have all of the wealth. You're going to have all of the things that you want, and you're going to have them now. We bring all of that, and we dump those expectations on Jesus. And guess what? He's not going to meet them because that's not life in the kingdom of God. That's not what he came to do. So what do we do with that? I think for a lot of us in our narrow vision of Jesus, we just kind of give up hope that he's going to work today. We just go, eh, 
whatever. I'll just go about my life, try and be as good as I can until the sweet bliss of heaven comes. But if that's what we're doing, we're missing out on all of these opportunities because every failed expectation that we place on Jesus, every failed expectation is an opportunity for fresh faith. Same is true of us. So how do we avoid finding ourselves praising Jesus on Sunday and by Wednesday, Tuesday afternoon, whatever day of the week it is, saying, eh, this ain't the guy. He's not worth it. I'm not really going to follow these things. Or just silently walking away, just doing our own thing. How do we avoid doing that? I've got two points to live it out this morning. The first is to read the gospel accounts of Holy Week this week, asking the question. And write this question down. Have it hanging over your prayers. Have it in your mind as you read. How does King Jesus want to reshape my expectations? There's four accounts of Holy Week. In each of the Gospels, there's one, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all have a lot of similarities. They all have some things that are different. You can find reading plans online that'll show you what chapter and verse, whatever. Or you could just flip through the Gospel of Matthew until you see the triumphant entry and start reading from there. And then do the same thing in Mark, and the same thing in Luke, same thing in John. But read those accounts this week asking this question, how does King Jesus want to reshape my expectations? I've, I've heard this said a number of times in different places, but uh, it's a saying that success is a function of expectation. Success is a function of expectation. What that means is if you grow up and you have this expectation of your, on your life that you're going to be a millionaire, and then you're in your 40s and you find that you're only making half a million dollars a year, you might think, I, I failed. I failed. Where someone else whose expectation maybe because they grew up in poverty, is merely to be able to feed their family and not get evicted, would look at your 500K a year and go, you are so successful. You have a level of success I couldn't even imagine. Well, success is a function of expectation. And so as we think about our Christian walk, what we expect of God and how that impacts us in our walk with him, it's important that we allow Jesus to reshape and redefine and challenge our expectations. Because just like with the crowd, there is so much cultural baggage that we are throwing on Jesus from Christian culture, from American culture, from our upbringing. We are throwing it on Jesus. And actually, if you read the Gospels, he'll tell you, not only am I not going to meet that expectation, I'm calling you to the exact opposite. Think about the rich young ruler who comes up to Jesus and said, I've followed the law. I've done everything. What do I do? Jesus says, sell everything. Give it to the poor and come follow me. What does he do? Does he go, great, I wasn't expecting that, but cool, that's my end. No, he walks away frustrated. He brought to Jesus expectations that Jesus is actually saying, no, not only am I not going to meet that, I'm going to flip it on its head. I'm going to call you to something exactly different. And if we're going to be purposely biblical, church, we need to read the Bible and lift our expectations of Jesus from him, from his words, from his revelation, and say, Jesus, challenge me. You know, here's the thing. If you can't find ways that Jesus wants to reshape your expectations, chances are you've cast Jesus in your own image. He's not challenging your expectations because you've just made Jesus into your own definition of what success and what life with God looks like. That's what the crowd tried to do to him. How did they walk away? That's ain't the guy. 
No, we need to let Jesus define himself on his terms if we're going to be purposely biblical. So I want to challenge you to do that. Read the gospel accounts this week. For some of you, that'll be a lot. You haven't read your Bible in a while, so to read multiple chapters that's asking a lot of you, I get it. I want to challenge you to do so, trusting that God will meet you. And secondly, when your expectations aren't met, when, not if, when your expectations aren't met, be like the women. The women in the room are going, yeah, preach. (laughs) When your expectations aren't met, be like the women. What do I mean by that? There were these female disciples of Jesus that, man, I think we have so much to learn from, and we just don't talk about it enough. They're supporting his ministry. Uh, They're sitting at his feet learning from him. They're serving him. They're serving alongside of him. They're pouring out their life savings at his feet. They're doing all this amazing stuff, and we just don't talk about them enough. But one of the things that they do in regards to what we're talking about today that I think is amazing and is an example to follow is they had the same expectations of everyone else that Jesus was going to bring this physical kingdom right now, that he was going to push back the Romans and restore Israel, all that stuff we talked about. They had the same expectations. So did the 12 disciples that we talked so much about. And when those expectations weren't met, when Jesus dies on the cross, the men bravely run away, some of them naked, and hide in an upper room. They deny him. They're scared. But then we get to Mark, excuse me, chapter 16. This is Sunday morning, the morning of the resurrection. We're going to celebrate next week. And here are the women. It says this, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. What did these women do? Their expectations were not met. They did not plan on using those spices to anoint the dead body of Jesus. That was not their plan. That was not their expectation. But what do they do? They have this disposition. Jesus, I don't know why you brought me to the grave. I don't know how to understand it all. But Jesus, you're here, so I'm here, and I'm serving you. In church, in your failed expectations, maybe it's in a marriage that's just not going the way you thought it would, Maybe it's in how your kids are turning out and you're confronted with your failures. Maybe it's in your health or lack of it. Maybe it's in your job. Maybe it's your failed expectations in church life. People are letting you down. Take those things, Jesus. You, you've laid me in the grave. I, I don't know why. I don't know how to understand it. But I believe that you're here. And so I'm here and I'm serving you. When your expectations aren't met, be like the women because here's their reward. Spoiler alert for next Sunday. Here's their reward. They are the first ones in all creation, for all time. They are the first ones and the only ones to be the first to hear the words, Jesus is not here for he is risen. And they're also the first ones to go and preach that message. Jesus is risen. Why? Well, they just took the next faithful step. They didn't know why they were at the grave. They didn't understand it. It wasn't what they expected. But here they are with their spices, just taking the next faithful step. And in your failed expectations, just take the next faithful step. And there you'll find an opportunity for fresh faith. I want to invite 
the band up as we close. Church, a watching world needs to see a people whose God is bigger than failure. A watching world needs to see a people whose God is still good in their hurts, a God who's still glorious in their failed expectations, a people who can still say, praise him, even when everything around them seems like it's just falling apart. That's what Jesus came to do, was give us a kingdom like that, a reality like that, restored to God, at peace with him, forgiven, made new in the spirit, restored to one another. May people see that of us. May they look at us and get the message, oh, Jesus is that guy. Jesus is the guy, because he is, isn't he? Let's pray. Lord, we praise you that you don't leave us where we're at, just as with the crowd on that Palm Sunday and throughout the week, and just as with those women at the grave, Lord, you don't, you don't leave us where we're at, but you give these invitations through our, our failed expectations to find fresh faith, new hope in you, glories that, that rise out of the ashes that otherwise we wouldn't have seen. And so, Lord, I pray that as we step into Holy Week, as we think about uh, the, the glory of Sunday and then the, the horror of Friday, that you would help us to enter into those spaces in our lives where we're experiencing more of the feelings of the horror of Friday than the glory of Sunday. And in those moments, Lord, would you meet us with fresh faith. Help us to look to you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand in and sing to him in response, and we'll take communion after this song. So if you haven't gotten the bread and the cup, if you're a Christian, we'd invite you to do that and take communion with us. I really hope that you were encouraged by the sermon today. You can learn more about us at anchorchurchgilbert.com. We'd love to have you join our mailing list. You can do that on the website. If you have any questions for us about who Jesus is, please let us know through our website. I hope that you were encouraged.